The Curmudgeon Rock Report. Curmudgeon rhymes with bludgeon. Rock gods do it right. So do rock nerds. We're here for The Rock. 1965, 2021, doesn't matter. Crude, rude, yet somehow sophisticated. Welcome. Enjoy the show. This is Christopher O'Connor, and you are listening to the latest voyage of the Curmudgeon Rock Report. Uh, Very proud of what we've accomplished so far. This is episode uh, number 11. Uh, We may not be the adventure zone yet, but we are building a worldview uh, link by link, chain by chain. And I think we're uh, doing some good stuff here along the uh, path, the rock nerd dumb, as in very dumb. Uh, Anyway, uh, say hello, Arturo Andrade from Guangzhou, South Korea. Yes. Hello. And um, things are good here. And we have a very special guest uh, for today's episode. Before we even introduce the episode, I'd like to introduce the guest. Uh, This is my uh, very good friend here in South Korea. He is a fellow music obsessive. And uh, we're very, very happy and pleased and thankful to have him on. This is Mr. Chan Hyun Park. Say hello, Chan Hyun. Hello, everyone. <laughs> yes, and, and, yes, and uh, and and we'll 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 talk a little bit. But uh, good to hear your voice, Chan Hyun. And uh, I know that a few of you may be asking uh, yourself, why is Arturo's good buddy from Korea, who is an actual real life Korean? Uh, why why is he on this podcast? Uh, the answer to that will become, uh, very evident here, uh, in a few minutes. Welcome to the Parallel Universe. The Parallel Universe is where Arturo and I, and now uh, uh, John Hyung is along for the ride. Uh, This is where we contemplate what life would look like in a rock and roll uh, pop music world that made any damn sense. And the good stuff was in the stadiums and on the radio and the artists that are actually doing all of the groundbreaking work or most of it. uh, Let's not knock the Taylor Swifts and the Cold Place too hard, but, you know, and the Bruno Mars, but in this parallel universe, like, you know, Kurt Vile is the president of the United States, for example. Uh, and so uh, on that note, uh, let us uh, get our uh, spaceship hats on and uh, play some Johann Strauss. And uh, Arturo, tell me, what are you listening to this week in the parallel, un- in parallel universe? Let's talk about a very, very new young band that just recently put out their debut album. This is the band, a band called Squid, and their debut album is called Bright Green Field. Now they put out uh, they put out a couple of singles during the past couple of years. Um, however, this is their debut album, 
And the British music hype, hype machine is notorious for going on overdrive, hyping sorely overrated bands without much staying power. However, recently their collective lips have sucked and, and recently their collective lips have sucked on the collective asses of mediocrity, such as the same sounding ham fisted bombast of idols and the cliche, generic, predictable, pretty boy, strokesian indie rock of Fontaine's DC. However, one band that in the past couple of years has justifiably gotten the UK music press's feathers in a ruffle is this Brighton-based quintet known as Squid. Now, they've been classified, if you will, as part of a new wave of British post-punk-tinged progressive rock that includes other bands such as Black Midi and Black Country New Road. While as technically talented as the latter two bands are, they are nowhere near as exciting, interesting, original, or downright engaging, catchy, and funky as Squid, who might very well be, or very well should be, the breakout band of the bunch. Imagine mid-1970s King Crimson and early Talking Heads having a bastard child with the tortured, barking anger of the Jesus Lizard's David Yao on vocals. That's pretty much what they sound like. The vocals wow. are actually done by the drummer and band leader, Ollie Judge. Uh, yes, they have a singing drummer. We don't get many of those anymore. Where's Don Hanley? <laughs> yeah, or Phil Collins, right? <laughs> so you get the uh, that comparison I just made, then add strong underpinnings of hard funk and spacey kraut rock soaring over it, and you get a good idea of what squid are like. Uh, finally, throw in lyrical touches reflecting socioeconomic despair and political angst at the rise of the far right delivered with gritty impressionism. The above-mentioned David Byrne and his paranoid, neurotic, lyrical persona is a big influence here, again. Uh, highlights include the sharp, angular funk workout of Narrator, whose mid-song slowdown then builds up into an orgasmic conclusion. Uh, you have Boy Racers with its clipped, sharp, motoric groove that midway through dissolves into a doom-laden synth drone, not unlike the intro to Led Zeppelin's In the Light, and the multi-segmented pamphlets, which goes from hypnotic bass-led groove to increasingly intense guitar synth-entwined washout with singer Judge complaining that uh, he doesn't go outside anymore because he's tired of seeing pamphlets distributed by far-right nationalist groups. If this all sounds like righteous rock and roll that everyone should get behind, that's because it is. Go check Squid out. Chris, I think you checked them out just recently. Yeah, I, I have checked out Squid, and uh, I agree with your uh, assessment of their influences and also the excitement. This is a very exciting uh, first listen. Uh, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that I immediately spotted LCD Sound System as perhaps a pretty strong influence on them. There's a lot of, uh, and granted, we, you know, we all know, and most of us can make that connection, that James Murphy himself was inspired by Byrne. And so there's a little bit of that paranoia, but the uh, the danciness of it, the funk, you know, that, that, that not only that, but that there's a kind of a mesmerizing, like the longer songs have this sort of mesmerizing beat and build up to it. It reminds yeah. me of some of the stuff from Sound of Silver. So. Uh, 
I do see this band as, like you said, that a lot of the, the British press, and they've been doing this for 25 years, they, well, they love everyone when they first come out, but 80% of what they love is vapid. Yeah. Uh, but not these guys. Uh, these guys yeah. actually, they, you know, I always say that if, uh, uh, if they hit you in the mush, if it feels like they're blasting you in the mush when it comes out of the speaker, that's a good album. So uh, for a guy who professes not to know much about rock and roll, Mdow Mokhtar sure does rock. Mokhtar, a native of Niger's perpetually battle-torn Toreg region, is the foremost and brightest shining star arising out of the Sahara regional desert blues scene. He's a left-handed, self-taught guitar god of the highest order. Mokhtar recently only discovered the music of Eddie Van Halen, according to press reports, and he arguably is already on par with Eddie as a fret tapper. This is only one of a number of brilliant techniques, tones, and moods on display from Mokhtar and his eponymous band's newest record, Afrique Victime. This is Mokhtar's maiden voyage backed by an American record label after years of self-released or under-the-radar releases. This record may enjoy some crossover success here in the U.S., but not in an ironic hipster way. This truly is a mesmerizing body of work. I've seen reviews and articles about Mokhtar that refer to his music as psychedelic rock, which to me is a lazy descriptor from writers who've probably done a few too many drugs in their lives. The label probably comes from uh, an admiration of Mokhtar's prodigious skills as a soloist. This dude can certainly shred and tap magic out of all of his pedals, as he does here on album opener Chizmitan and the title track, which may become a rallying cry for revolutionaries across Africa, with translated lyrics that shoot bullets at neo-colonial France like these. The wind born in Tunisia spread all over Arabia. Africa is a victim of so many crimes. If we stay silent, it will be the end of us. Why is this happening? What is the reason behind this? Yet the brightest and most fascinating musical passages on Afrique Victime are its gentlest, or at least its most synergistic. The pretty, passion-infused harmonies and balladry of Tala Tanem, the amped-up exotic rhythms, percussive claps, supple acoustic guitar notes, and chants, of the album closer Bismillahi Ataga, the slithering bass line that ties the hypnotic Ya Habibti together. Indeed, much of this album is acoustic communal music, a kind of an indigenous folk driven by a masterful songwriter, arranger, and craftsman. Uh, the album was largely recorded during one-off sessions while the band was on tour in 2019 to support Mokhtar's breakthrough through Into Western Consciousness, the Rock Balls quality Ilana, the creator. That may explain why the album oscillates so organically in mood between wistful, celebratory, and agitated. It's an understandable mix of emotions for Mokhtar. Life in Niger in general, and in Mokhtar's Torig uh, region, is not easy. As it has been for more than a century, the aggression, insurgencies, civil wars, and anti-colonialism that last part includes the U.S. as well as France, all centers around the mining of uranium and the desire to control it or share in its wealth. The never-ending cycle of violence and cultural inertia experienced by Mokhtar's nomadic Tauric ancestors and peers clearly fills the musician with rage that simmers underneath the galloping regional grooves and razor-sharp soloing of the song Afrique Afri uh, Vectime. 
While the rest of the album is written and sung in Mokhtar's native Tauric language, Afrique Victime is boldly sung in French. It's a fight song for all of Africa. It honors Mandela, it condemns Gaddafi, and it has that jousting line about Tunisian winds. The final result is an intense nine-song, 41-minute rumble of an album that takes us on a tour through Mokhtar Tarsoul. This may be the best album I'll hear all year. It certainly will be one of the most important. Mdu Mokhtar has a musical vocabulary that deserves to be heard widely. I think it's important to understand also where he comes from. Um, yeah, he's from Niger, but he's uh, he's part of the Tuareg uh, people. The, um, the Tuaregs are a, a civilization of people. They are basically desert inhabitants. And, yeah, um, uh, they, very nomadic. Basically, yeah, very, basically yeah. desert gypsies. Yeah, they're mm-hmm. basically desert gypsies. And they span uh, all throughout northern and western Africa particularly yeah. Libya, Algeria, Niger, Mali. And Mali, and Burkina Faso as well. Yes. Um, and one of the interesting things about Mokhtar, not just being a great guitar player and musical artist, he's also an actor. Um, back in 2015, there was a film, uh, an independent film, um, uh, uh, directed by a guy named Christopher Kirkley, who owns a small record label that specializes in West African uh, uh, desert music, if you will, and um, yeah, Sahel Sounds is is the, is is the name of the of the record label, and the movie is called Akaunak uh, Tedalat Taha Tazaghai. Basically, translates to "Rain, the color of blue with a little red in it." Yes, purple rain. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, the the film is essentially a remake of Prince's 1984 Purple Rain with Mokhtar playing the Prince part. And um, the reason uh, it it has such a convoluted title is because in the Tuareg language, which is uh, called Tamashek, um, there is no word for the color purple. That word doesn't exist in the language. So they have to give it this, uh, this title. And the film, like I said, is, is a, is, is an homage and kind of a recreation of Prince's Purple Rain with Mokhtar's own personal biographical story thrown in there a little bit. And the film got really positive reviews and won a few awards at some international film festivals. And that's what people, that the movie actually is what got people, uh, really into, uh, Mdao Mokhtar. And which led to the breakthrough of his 2019 album, Milana, the Creator. There, there, uh, we now leave the parallel universe and come back into our universe. And uh, like uh, we said at the beginning of the episode, we have a guest, uh, you know, Chun Hyung Park, uh, who uh, lives there in Guangzhou, South Korea with Arturo. So Arturo, what the hell is he doing on this broadcast with us? Well, the reason he's here is that um, aside from being a big rock music fan like us, he's also quite knowledgeable about Korean music and its history. And what we're focusing on today is, believe it or not, K-pop. Now, for the past decade, K-pop has become a dominant force in popular music with several acts, uh, if you will, such as Psy and BTS breaking through in big ways in the Western market. In fact, the K-pop genre's march to worldwide popularity has been kind of fermenting for quite a long time. 
And it's been a gradual process since the 1990s. And now for us to, you know, you and I, Chris, curmudgeons and other crusty old rock fans out there, we just don't fucking get it. No, we don't. (laughs) Um, Chris has never been a fan of mechanized, inauthentic, vapid, pre-processed pop. I, for one, have always thought and still think K-pop is at best a bad imitation of bad Western pop music, at worst robot music for zombies to dance to. Nevertheless, on this episode, the curmudgeons are going to try and open their minds (laughs) and we're going to try and figure, get down to the bottom of this of this K-pop revolution. And like I mentioned earlier in the episode, our guest is our good friend, Mr. Chan Hyun Park. Uh, like I said, a music geek enthusiast like the both of us and a native Korean with a very strong knowledge of Korean music, its history and its trends. And most importantly, he will try to provide context and history, the history of K-pop in order to help us understand why and how this genre uh, continues to appeal to so many people. Absolutely. And so we appreciate that. And uh, just uh, as an aside, in honor of Paul Mooney, who uh, just died uh, this week, we're going to uh, colloquially call this section, Ask a Korean Dude. Uh, you know, if, 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 if you want to get to the heart of the matter of Korean music, don't leave it to a, a first generation American Cubano from Miami and some half Irish kid from Syracuse, New York. You got to go straight to the source. So, uh, yeah. so Chun Hyung, the, uh, yeah. the hopes of the hopes of an entire nation rest on your shoulders. Prince Rogers Nelson was born on June 7th, 1958. He grew up in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Michael Jackson was born on August 29, 1958. He grew up in Gary, Indiana, roughly 450 miles southeast of Minneapolis. Both men released their debut albums in the late 1970s. By 1982, they were both super-duper stars. Yes, the parallels between two of popular music's brightest shining stars are pretty eerie. Arturo and I will soon begin dissecting the brilliance of both men in an ongoing series of episodes we've dubbed Prince vs. Michael. Why the name? Because I have the audacity to defend the legacy of Michael as greater than that of Prince's, and Arturo has the audacity to argue the exact opposite. Before we get going, where do you stand? Zap your thoughts to us at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com. So, uh, Chan Hyun, let's... uh Tell, me, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, and your relationship to music and the music you generally like and your relationship to K-pop. <laughs> okay, my name is Chanyan Park and I'm 28 years old, 27 in American age. I mostly listen to new metal, unlike Arturo. I mean, Arturo here despises new metal, but for most, me, most, I- most new metal. Most. I don't. New metal. <laughs> okay. uh, I, honestly, I don't, but uh, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> I mean, to each to their own. I mean, like, uh, I mean, like, I was gonna explain this, you know, uh, preference. My preference of new metal is derived from the fact that you know there were no alternatives in early, you know, in my early age. I mean, like, I, I grew up with K-pop, but they they were not appealing to me in any way in uh shape or form so i resorted myself to listening to some sort of you know some 41s still waiting and you know bullets over my over my head and some songs like that that you guys 
probably never heard of, but <laughs> I really dug in, dug myself into that kind of culture. And that's part of the reason why I was so, I was so invested in musical, you know, industry and Western culture in general. But I grew up, like I said, I grew up with K-pop, so I know what the K-pop is. I know what the deal is. So I can briefly, or maybe extensively, if you guys want to, uh, and, you know, tell guys what the K-pop is all about. So Yeah, yeah. Uh, f- find the middle ground between briefly and extensively and just kind of give us the half-secret inside dope and give us your take. So basically what we're going to start with first, Chanyun, um, tell us first around the t- what we now know as K-pop. Give us like the year or the time frame when it started to emerge, the music that we now know as K-pop, when it started busting out, and and then go backward. Tell us what the music scene, the popular music scene in Korea, what was it like before K-pop? So before K-pop, it was more of a love songs and some guitar bands. And there was a genre called trot. Mm. And it was a mixture of Korean folk songs and uh, you know, some sort of love song. I mean, American influence was largely at hand. I mean, we were occupied be- by the uh, American you know, military back then. Like I'm talking about early uh 1950s and 60s and right. things like that we were still in shambles and there wa- there wasn't that much of a cultural influence to be to begin with so we were mostly got influenced by american you know culture and pop music so we but at the same time we wanted to invent a new wheels so we uh developed this genre called trot so that that's pretty much what we had back then back in Back in early days of you know so-called K-pop, but what it re- when it really took off is I should say 1992 to 2000, early 2000. That's when most of the uh, boy bands such as G.O.D. You guys never heard of that right. uh, that band before, and Sotaeji. It's not exactly a band, but oh, I digress. It was actually a band back in 1990s, but. Uh, they uh, separate their ways, and uh, Sateji, being the main guy himself, started you know doing the solo and things like that. Anyway, uh, yeah, that's that's when the uh, K-pop really took off, and a lot of people uh, with the with the economic growth and you know cultural evolution, and because of the Han River uh, miracle, yeah, uh, we were really you know. Going forward, the uh, with the with the cultural, you know, evolution and things like that. Yeah, for, for those who don't know, the Han River Miracle is basically a phrase uh, used to describe the Korean economic boom uh, in the 1980s that um, basically resulted in Seoul getting the Olympics in 1988. And um, yeah, from like starting in the early 80s, Korea just exploded economically. Hyundai and Samsung became major. Uh, presences in the in, in the automobile and electronics markets, and that kind of affected Korean pop culture as well. Because Koreans started to get more of a positive um, encouragement of themselves as a, as a society and as a people. And I imagine that kind of fed into the pop music and into the birth of K-pop. Like this is our music, right? Yeah, right. yeah. I mean, like you said, because you know, after what happened. Uh, you know, the Douglas MacArthur rampage of the fifties and sixties and, you know, the, the splitting of the two countries. Uh, I imagine, like you said, I, it, 
talk about identity politics, that's identity politics to the, uh, to the nth, you know, yeah. really needing your own thing. So no, that's cool. I, I never really thought about that. So great. Yeah. So, and, 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 and uh, these, these early K-pop groups, you know, uh, I think why did so many people start liking this music and how did this, how did its popularity kind of like spread? Like, no. Uh, I want to get to the meat of that first because uh, I should say this: sex sells, and the happy <laughs> monetization of sexual theme back in the day was kind of thing. And it has largely it's largely due to the fact that we got democratized. I mean, am I saying it correctly? Yeah, you, you are. Yeah, you are. yeah. After democratic, uh, after we became a democratic nation, the government crackdown has been laxed quite quite a bit, and yeah. we weren't. Uh, women weren't able to wear miniskirts or hot pants or things like that. It was illegal to do so back in 1970s and 80s and even early 90s. But after after the democratization, uh, the government stopped cracking down on those kind of things, and and musical industry uh, grew up with the with that because yeah. there there was no crackdown or anything at all to stop them. So they were really, really digging into this kind of, you know, first they were trying to, you know, get the creative mind going and, you know, try to, they try to come up with the, uh, you know, critical uh, stance and standpoint of view when it comes to, you know, political, you know, agenda and things like that. But soon they delved into the, the, monetization of sex uh, and things like that because at the end of the day uh, money is what matters when it comes to labels and things like that happened. Yeah, uh, boys digging girls and girls digging feminine feminine boys is what happened back then, back in 1990s and early 2000. And uh, I'd like to give you an example. Like, for example, the military guys enlistees in, in Korea. It, you guys remember the fact that, uh, you know, in South Korea, uh, young men get, you know, drafted yeah, without, yeah. Without, uh, against in, their in, will? You are, well, basically, in, in, in Korea, you have mandatory military service okay. uh, for, all, for all men, for all boys, really. But that's, uh, like most your, of, that's like most of the world these days. I mean, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I so mean, the, except except us, I and mean, we're like the only like voluntary military, I think, in the in the world. Just well, about. the British, you know, the British, yeah, and the British is voluntary so, too. Several but, other, but, several other European, but countries. you know, like like Israel and other countries, you know, they have yeah. the whole mandatory. Well, in Israel, both thing. men and women have to do military service. There you uh, go. In, 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 in Korea, it's just it's just the males. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but we're in the pro- process. Of, um, I might have to, you know, digress, but we were in the talks of, you know, including women into our, you know, armed forces. So mm. uh, we're, we'll get to that eventually if we become more inclusive and things like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, okay, so so basically now the K-pop music itself, um, when the earliest K-pop music, what did it sound like? Oh, they sounded like, you know, American rock bands, really? you know, quite literally. Like pop, yeah. pop rock bands. Yeah, pop rock bands. Yeah. I mean, uh, if you guys are talking about, you know, pop rock bands such as, you know, Nickel- Nickelback. Or <laughs> it sounded like Nickelback? No, no, not Nickelback. Like, bon, like to, bon, more to, like Bon Jovi? <laughs> yeah, more more like Bon Jovi. Yeah. And, you know, what else? 
uh, Rage Against the Machine. Really? To, to, to give you an idea. Yeah, wow. Satechi was quite a like, you know, Rage Against the Machine when it comes to the, when, when it comes to his political stance and his worldview and things like that. They were really super, you know, critical about the, uh, government's, you know, crackdown on things and, yeah. uh, the, the, the Korean society's, uh, downfall and things like that you know we were really super focused on you know teaching uh, i mean growing up as a kid i never had that much of a sleep i sleep deprivation was a thing like wow. i had to like sleep four to five hours a day just to get by because the study uh, study session was so extensive yeah. and sateji was like his disgust and to right. us students because he was really pushing against the you know, this nature of hyper obsession when it comes to, you know, education and things like that. And yeah. And, and that, that, that's interesting because uh, here in Korea, there's such an intense focus on education. Um, Kids, they don't just go to their regular school. They go to academies for extra tutoring lessons and anywhere ranging from math to science, to English, to piano, to Taekwondo, um, it's very common for Korean kids to go to be in school from like 7 a.m. or 8 a.m. all the way to like 7 p.m. <laughs> yeah, it's really it's really quite common in the culture and in the society. Yeah, I would like know. to chime in on that. Because, uh, that's part of the reason why a lot of Korean, you know, youngsters back in the day, back in uh, 2000, you know, early 2000 listening listen to you know those kind of music is because they haven't had that much of a time to begin with so yeah. they didn't have any time to go go out and play with other youngsters and things like that right. so they resorted themselves to just listen to you know this heavy you know music and things yeah. like that uh, i must say that uh, back in the day korean pop music was really heavy how should i say it they were they sounded like you know you know corn Really? Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. Like a, wow. I, wow. That that that, that kind yeah. of Ang- yeah. angry angry K-pop. Yeah, yeah. Angry K-pop. Yeah. yeah. They, those were the those were the thing back in the day. So 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 when so K-pop uh, now K-pop as we know it now has a lot of EDM electronic dance music and hip hop influence. When did that started seeping into K-pop and becoming the K-pop that we know now? Mm, I was going to go into that yeah. uh, later on this oh, okay. episode, but. Okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna say it anyway. Uh, yeah. I should say it started around 2003 to 2007 because okay. 2007 to be precise, because Wonder Girls and Girls Generation, those were the top you know girl bands back in the day. Yeah, so I remember. I, I remember Wonder Girls. They were they were fun. They opened for the Jonas Brothers back in the mid noughties yeah, yeah, they, they they had a moment back then when I was at first year of law school. They were a thing. So yeah. anyway, go ahead, go ahead, man. Right, and yeah, that's that's the time period I should give when it comes to you know EDM kind of song that happened back then. Uh, I I was going to get into this uh you know topic more into uh, I was going to delve into this topic more, uh, but the reason why Korean uh, pop music in general is hyper focused on you know sexualization of idols, so called idols, yeah. is because you know military guys and enlistees they they need a fix. I mean, they need an outlet or some sort of things yeah. like that because they were they they got drafted without against their against their will. So yeah, 
So this is my theory, but the government is actively trying to, you know, promote some sort of, you know, sexualization Mm -hmm. of K-pop because of this, because of this reason, because back, back when I was in the military, uh, we, uh, not on a regular basis, but occasionally they were, uh, they were sending those kind of, you know, girl bands and, you know, not very popular, but those kind of K-pop, pseudo K-pop girl bands, then bring it over and dance in front of us and things like that. So that's something to think about. And, and other, another point I was trying to make is that indie scene back in the day, uh, was kind of you know in growth. They were they were growing up, but because of this one big incident, uh, things really gone sour. How, how should I say it? Yeah, the yeah. the indie. What he what he means by the indie scene is Korean rock, basically. Yeah, Korean rock mostly, and KBS Korean Broadcasting System gave them a chance. Gave this uh, no name band, uh, and basically gave them a chance to be on a stage and on perform. TV. Yeah. yeah. On TV, live TV performance without any kind of, you know, prior, you know, screening, co- screening or yeah. contact or any yeah. kind yeah. of thing back then. So it was literally the, uh, how, how should I say it? The definition of live right. television show. And what's the name of this band? Uh, they were, they were no name band. You know, okay. it was basically, they had no names for it. <laughs> they I'm, I'm, they had no name. They had no names. <laughs> I'm just serious. They had no names. They came here in, is a band. Yeah. This, <laughs> and the reason why they were trying to bring in the, these kind of no name bands over to their stage is because they wanted to promote the indie scene because yeah. they wanted to see more of Soteji. They wanted to see more of G.O.D. Right. And, you know, they wanted to, you know, show the youngsters that there are alternatives right. and, they, and maybe we can... Alternatives to dance pop. Yeah. They, yeah. yeah. Right. But they... Uh, excuse my language. They fucked it up. because. <laughs> Uh, the indie band, this no-name band, <laughs> showed up on the stage on live television show and showed their penises, like all of them. Like all, they, they all dropped their pants yeah, and showed they, their dicks. Yeah, they all dropped their <laughs> pants and showed their dicks to the audience, and the studio was in total <laughs> array. I mean, like you can you can probably look it up, and the video footage is still there on YouTube. I gotta check this out. Oh, uh, I mean, uh, I'm not sure if it's on YouTube because it's. <laughs> the Korean government probably banned it. Yeah. 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 So, so what would so what would so what would you search for? Korean punk live television dicks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> so so yeah. so they didn't play their instruments. They just like no no, no. Them. they they were at first they were trying they were you know trying to play the instrument and things like that. Yeah. And it was just a normal thing. Yeah. Just the usual day, but. <laughs> In the midway, that they drop all, they all drop their pants and you know give them give their uh, middle audience finger? middle middle fingers and, and their and their penises dangling. and their penises wow. dangling. <laughs> so, in the, so in the middle of the song, they stop playing, drop their guitars, drop yeah. their pants, and give the middle finger to the cameras. Funnily, oh, wow. funnily, enough, guitarists kept playing. <laughs> oh, the guitarists uh, kept playing. Yeah, after after dropping their pants, I mean, I still vividly remember the f- video footage of that. I mean, like. Yeah. Jeez. Anyway, 
that's the death knell of Korean rock yeah. as a mainstream thing. Right, <laughs> right. So the government really woke up with this feeling that, oh, maybe we shouldn't be, you know, promoting. Allow- yeah, allowing these, you know, no name bands and allowing these kids to go out on a stage because they behave like a bunch of, you know, lunatics. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah uh, for, for what it's worth, uh, I just searched YouTube for that church I just mentioned, and it's not going to be that easy to find it because it's like, yeah. <laughs> it, it basically is all this modern uh, Korean stuff. So uh, oh, yeah, let me, let me look that up. I can yeah, so all, yeah, all three of us now have a homework assignment. We need to find <laughs> this footage of these guys getting their big break on national television and dropping their drawers. Uh, while, while the guitarist stay, stays in uh, stays in character and and focuses and actually like does his job, so <laughs> they shocked the world without even having a name. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say nameless penis. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so we digress. So, so that's the end of a serious Korean rock music. Now, uh, around the, like you said, in the mid noughties is when uh, EDM and hip hop started infiltrating k-pop the music stylistically and to what it's evolved into now um so so exactly what did the korean music industry i'm sure they work together with the government to market and export k-pop to other countries particularly in southern and eastern asia right yeah oh so i feel like there was a gap there was an empty gap to fill in for us i guess and they they were in desperate need of you know cultural evolution i mean i'm not trying to be on a high horse and say that we were the we're we're like the saviors when it comes to their culture and things like that but i'm just stating the fact that they there was a you know need for you know that kind of you know pop music and they were i'm sure i know some of the uh vietnamese friends and they told me that you know Back in the day, they were listening to American, you know, pop music for the most part. But later on, they uh, started listening to K-pop for for some reason because all the all the other friends are were listening to. And I really thought to myself, I never asked them why, but yeah. I really thought to myself, oh, that's in, that is interesting. What uh, what may be the reason of that reason behind that? Yeah. And I feel like, uh because we were Asians just like them. Yeah. I think that's probably the reason why they liked uh, our music over American music. Uh, and it's, it's shiny, it's glossy, and right. the girls are beautiful. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah. Don't, yeah, don't discount hot girls. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And uh, this is from my Singaporean friend. And she told me that they... Uh, because uh, being under dictatorship, yeah. like back in the nineteen nineties and eighties uh, and nineties, mm-hmm. Singaporean people really needed some sort of fix when it comes to culture mm. and uh, pop music and things like that. A release, uh, release, yeah. yes. And just like us, because they were under dictatorship uh, back in starting from you know early two thousand to you know. Uh, late 2000 they you know started listening to k-pop because just like any other uh vietnamese people and uh how should i say it Mm, people from southeast asia yeah they uh liked k-pop because of our image Mm. not because of our 
music. music. It was and, yeah, because hot hot women, hot looking guys who look like women. Yeah, you know, and, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean that 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 kind of androgyny and sexuality that that kind of really sells well in countries like Thailand and Vietnam. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, Cambodia and, uh, uh, even Japan, you know, the well, Japan's had, you know, had that kind of androgynous well, I mean, sexuality. Yeah. I was going to say an, an, anime is about as androgynous as it gets as an art. Yeah. So. so like, you know, the, there's, whereas like in conventional society, some of these countries are very strict and conservative, but like behind closed doors, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of blurred lines. Um, uh, I mean, I, I've been to Thailand several times. We have a good friend who lives there. Yeah, you know, I was going to say. Sexu- and then, sexuality down there is a very negotiable thing. Yes, you know, uh, literally and, negotiable. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And uh, but you know, but yeah. Anyway, you know, a lot of you know, a lot of these Asian countries they were um, that that really got into K-pop were turned on, like Chan Yun said, by the image. The sexuality and the androgyny was something that really, you know, right. clicked with a lot of these Asian countries. And uh, eventually it started clicking with Western countries as <laughs> countries like, you know, the United States, Canada, all throughout Europe. You know, we've become and I say we and me as Western people um, like Chris and I, like we've become more as a society, more open um, um, to sexual preferences and sexuality expressed in different ways. And this maybe may coincide why K-pop has started to make inroads in North America and Europe. And so, yeah, so, yeah, so I guess the, the Korean music industry, and I would say aided by the Korean government, did a really good promotional marketing job. Knowing this, they probably are really smart about it. And they knew that it was eventually going to crack. And they've tried cracking the U.S. market many times. And, uh, I think I, it didn't really start cracking <laughs> until 2013 or 2012 with a certain 30-something-year-old, kind of past his prime at the time, K-pop star named Psy. Yeah, Gangnam Style was the first major K-pop hit. And that's, that's, that's the, big bang, the big bang moment for K-pop in the Western world. And that, you know? that was a fun right. song, fun song and even funner video, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I must say, like my Singaporean Singaporean friend explained before, there was an empty gap to fill in, and alternative was needed for them. And Koreans were regarded as somewhat friendly, friendlier compared to American pop scene and things sure. like this. I sure. I don't know how, but you know they thought thought of us like somewhat likable, I guess. <laughs> and government, yeah, government took this as a sign that can be. Uh, you know, we can exploit exploit this. Exploit this yeah, yeah. Yeah. And they really, you know, they they drop the hammer down and they pull out the uh, active measures to ensure success in the Southeast Asian market. And not yeah. only in South Asian market, Middle East and Japan and China and all over the you know, nations and sex like cells, and they, yeah. they they just pumped up the sexual quotient basically <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> for the money. I mean, like like I said before, you know, we were our country was in shambles. We don't have natural resources. I mean, most of the natural resources are in North Korea, so South Korea only has like you know infra some sort of infrastructure and manpower so what can we do we can resort to you know either we can be educationally genius and uh or maybe we can you know sell sex or you know some goods and you know produce sell sell their culture 
<laughs> yeah, cellular culture. Yeah. Yeah, to put it lightly. Yeah. So yeah, that's partly the reason why South Asian market opened up for us. And then eventually that strategy translated to the Western world as the West, like I said earlier, as, as Western countries started to become a little more open to that kind of glossy sexuality and boom, all of a sudden now, now we got BTS. On this episode, Chris and I got to the bottom of the K-pop explosion. For the next episode, We'll get to the bottom of another pop culture phenomenon that has been ongoing since the mid-1960s, covers of Bob Dylan songs. The Bard's songbook has been a source of material for bands and artists of all genres and spectrums for more than half a century. Chris and I will give our choices for the 10 most interesting, if not the best, Dylan covers. Email us at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com or hit us on Twitter at, at curmudgeonpod. I don't think the I don't think our approach when it comes to, you know, breaking the wall of Western market has yeah. changed. Okay. I feel like Western market has changed. Right. That's, that's what I said earlier. Yeah. yeah right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the strategy that the Korean music industry, with the help from the government, it's like, okay, we're just going to do our thing yeah, and we're going to wait exactly. for those countries to change. And once they changed, boom, they went right through the door. Right. You know? I feel like American society has changed quite a bit in the past couple of decades. Yeah. And they were they became more open and more inclusive and things like that. And, and partly the reason why we were successful uh, back in early 2010, I guess, and with the help of YouTube and other media outlets coverage, we were able to finally crack the Western market. But I'm going to, you know, stop here and I'm going to explain this later on yeah. in more extensive detail. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. so that's that's basically it. Yeah. And what, what, what's the extensive detail? Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> right, right here? Yeah, go for it. Well, Sai Gangnam Style being the first knock on the Western market yeah, back in sure. 2012. Yeah. And it's largely due to the fact that their, you know, music video got published on YouTube. And it was super funny. And because Sai was like a it was Sai was like a nobody in yeah. you know in in my perspective. Yeah. I mean he wasn't even that great back in the day. They they were He was he wasn't even that big in Korea. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> and do you guys remember uh, do you guys know the fact that he had to enlist two times in the military? Why? Because Why? Yeah. for so here's the deal: when he first enlisted, there was no you know registration or any some sort of you know an official you know thing to prove that he enlisted. So <laughs> he after he after he got discharged, soon after he got back to back back into the the musical industry. He got informed that oh, come back here. You're 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 gonna have to serve in our military again. What the fuck? Why? And he, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and, and he and he was older at this. Yeah, point. he was like yeah. <laughs> early thirties. So most, <laughs> most of the, yeah, most yeah. of the Korean enlistees in the military are in their early twenties. So nineteen twenty. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was gonna I was Imagine gonna say there, there, there's a comedy. There's a Chris Farley movie in there somewhere. You know, <laughs> yeah. Oh, poor guy. But anyway, so so after so Psy broke through with that that song, even Gangnam Style, right. and then after style. that, yep. mm-hmm. yeah, 
after after that we we just kept going in JYP and some sort uh, some some other you know musical industry giants really pushed out you know to you know to the Western market with Wonder Girls and Girls Generation and you know we were I gotta be honest we were really you know frankly surprised that we were successful in. Uh, Western when the Western market, especially in America, because the sentiment there is so different mm-hmm. from Asian market. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and I, I don't think K-pop's approach has been changed. Like I said before, I think the market's been changed. Yeah, and because of because of the fact that America uh, politically and economically has changed quite a lot culturally, uh, culturally, and that's partly the, uh, not partly the predominantly the reason I why agree. Yeah. yeah we were successful there yeah. and BTS being the you know the latest prime, it, the prime example yeah prime example of that it really broke down the wall and not only in America but throughout the world it's you know hitting the big leagues I must say yeah BTS is one of the biggest groups in the world and for like for Chris and I, our generation, we're old guys, you know, in our forties. We think BTS. We think of you know the classic indie rock band built to spill. Yeah, know? exactly. And all, and all of a sudden, BTS is getting big. It's like, what? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Finally, oh no, not, not that BTS. Yeah, that that did mess me w- with me for a little bit. Uh, I will say this though, uh, as part of this episode, I I did uh, explore uh, BTS a little bit more uh, deeply than I have, and I was kind of stunned. Uh, they're actually pretty good. I mean, they're they're these seven androgynous guys. But uh, for anybody out there that's ambitious, go out there on YouTube. They have a cover of Coldplay's "Fix You" that is astonishingly good. Those guys can sing. Uh, those guys can sing. And then obviously, they're they're uh, as they get bigger, they they become kind of like a Backstreet Boys manufacturing. Uh, uh, like an assembly line so they can get all the good writers and all the good producers. But yeah, they, yeah, I mean, um, they're, they're, they're the biggest boy band since NSYNC. Um, so I got to give it up for them, but yeah, the rest of it still kind of sucks. It's like, uh, it's like Detroit house music uh, as done by NSYNC, which is, uh, or I'm, I'm, <laughs> I, uh, sorry, everybody. I'm not supposed to say that word. Uh, send hate mail to curmudgeonrock at gmail.com. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. That, interesting that you say that Korean cancel culture is part of thing. And now starting from here, I'm going to talk about the negatives about the uh, Korean you know, pop K-pop. scene and yeah. things like yeah. that. Cancel culture is a thing. So whenever somebody talks shit about, you know the boy bands or girl bands they like they're they're literally gonna go down go after you yeah like how dare you criticize our k-pop idols i'm i'm that serious they're gonna come for you like in in korea they they got this cancel culture but and they they will be you know they'll they're gonna do anything they've got at their proposal to you know make your life miserable when it comes to that's that, that, that that that's also social media and bullying uh, yeah. Social media bullying is a big, big thing, and that's and and that's how they do it. You know, the, 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 that's where the 
that's how they me for me someone like me who's not on really on social media like I like I I barely use Facebook I only use it really for text messaging I don't do Twitter I don't do Instagram so that shit has no effect on me like this podcast that we're doing right now is as close to social media as I ever get <laughs> yeah 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 pretty pretty much and you know me I mean so I have to use LinkedIn and Twitter uh, professionally every day and you know and I use Facebook less than I do. Twitter's interesting. I, you know, Twitter, that's where the most bullying happens, but that's also where the most informative stuff and that's where like the best interactions happen too. Yeah. But anyway, I digress. Uh, you were saying, and, yeah, you were saying, go ahead. And most of the youngsters now, nowadays they got access to, you know, 98 uh, percentage of Korean population are literate and they got, you know, they got their cell phones and internet connections and yeah. pretty much everyone has their internet connection. So these youngsters really mm-hmm. dig into their boy bands. Mm-hmm. They're, they're going to come after you whenever they, you know, say something bad about them. And, you know, there was this incident, you know, back in 2017, I believe. Uh, it was not only because of the, you know, boy band because she the the perpetrator was largely mentally you know unstable mentally uh, mentally uh, disabled uh, yeah unstable unstable oh, yeah okay. mental health issues okay. yeah mental health issues so yeah. there were like two girls and they you know one girl talked shit about you know you know some you know bands got seven got seven yeah that was the name of the you know boy band and they talked shit about it and they came after her and basically chopped her chopped her up into pieces and threw them into the you know, sewer or something good like good lord that. yeah Jeez. you know it, those are the you know things you know that that are happening when it comes to the k-pop k-pop uh, obsession uh, k-pop obsession and things like yeah. that and cancel culture is largely at hand to that and what other things i would like to mention you know like i said before sexualized over sexualization we're following japan's trend when it comes to pop culture uh i should have really mentioned this before because back in 1980s and 1990s we were uh first japan got influenced by american culture american pop scene and they largely adopted that and after that we basically just imported the same stuff so we you know, we were, it's called a city pop, and we were listening to those type of music back in the day. And later on, Japan really started, you know, these sexualization, over-sexualization of idols and, you know, and we somehow just follow suit. Like I Like I explained before, this is largely due to the fact that government stopped cracking down, but uh i must say it was an interesting you know thing to witness and because of that a lot of you know korean you know girls in their early i mean late late teens i mean how should i say teenagers they join in, in musical labels and they pour their hearts and soul into you know becoming the next big thing but uh, at the end of the day, their future, some some took off. Like, for example, one or two girl bands out of 100, maybe they, they can take off. But rest of the people, rest of the people who you know, pour their hearts and soul into it, they just got, they just get exploited. Yeah. 
and you know they end up as a end up end up as a you know sex worker and things like that that kind of bad thing happened so yeah i I, I never it never dawned on me until you said that that even though a lot of those guys look like girls they're all guys and uh, yeah so i never really realized that there was that kind of misogyny that runs through it Oh yeah, I mean in, in the, the the Korean record industry, like a lot of, I mean there have been rumors, but a lot of the girl, especially the girl pop groups, that you know, and even maybe even some of the boy pop groups, yeah, that, you know, there me. Yeah. rumors of like sexual favors having to be done in order for promotion, right? You know, I mean, let's face it, dude, it shouldn't be shocking because the same sh- the same shit exists in the in the American record industry. <laughs> in some <laughs> respects, it shouldn't be shocking. Oh, what was the name of the movie director? Harvey, Weinstein. oh Harvey Weinstein, oh, Harvey Weinstein. Weinstein. Yeah, that guy's yeah, a big and a half. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of the same deal. Just like in Hollywood, you know, we, we are, we are, we're a small, we're living in a small country, so yeah, yeah everything is super hyper focused and super connected. So yeah, there, there's no escape from that. Yeah, yeah, when exactly. It comes to entertainment, but I'm industry. sure. But yeah, but you know, the same thing in the UK music scene. Same thing, you know. Uh, I'm sure that a lot of sexual favors were done there, you know, in order in order for certain pop acts, male and female, <laughs> to 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 get big. You know, it's just it's just it's just unfortunately, it's you know, it's 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 unfortunately part of the business, you know, in some sectors, you know. But anyway, yeah, you know, uh, uh, cyber bullying and. Uh, Sexual corporate favors, the dark side of K-pop and, and other areas of pop music as well. And <laughs> other areas of pop music uh, about yeah, Korean pop music scene has this weird trend that mm-hmm. uh, has, pe- has people, you know, follow their celebrities, you know. Celebrities, to, yeah. Cele- celebrities. Yeah, yeah. To their, to their teeth. I mean, it's Korean expression, but... Uh, Basically, what people do is that they follow the boy band members or some sort of celebrity they like. Yeah. And they follow all the way to their house. They figure out their phone number. They figure out oh, yeah. their home addresses and things like that. that yeah, they, yeah, yeah. Fan obsession. That, that, yeah, that's not fan, new. <laughs> yeah, that's not new. But it's on a whole new level when they place yeah. a uh, hidden camera inside their apartment Jesus. things like that. Good lord! <laughs> right, it's a it's yeah. a it's a reality. I well, mean, I mean, like, it's 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 it's, it's, it's 21st century fan <laughs> obsession. You know, before right. when it was like teenage girls shrieking and fainting, seeing the Beatles and throwing their panties their <laughs> panties at them. Now it's like I want to break into their home and put a camera in there in <laughs> <Right>. their home <laughs> and li- live broadcast and things like yeah. that. Live stream. It's just yeah. crazy out there. Yeah, to to take this home, Sean uh, uh, Hyung. Uh, where do you see K-pop going in the next five years? I mean, is it uh, is it something that's going to become like Saturday morning, like uh, like kind of like Menudo is to Puerto Rico? I mean, is, are you going to start seeing like these, like even like the 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 most electronic and uh, sort of studly of these guys are are they going to start playing for audiences of seven year olds on uh, cartoon shows? Uh, I mean, uh, I don't think, like I said before, our, you know, sentiment has been changed. The market has been changed. I, I think our approach when it comes to selling, you know, K-pop music in general won't be changed large, largely due to the fact that we're doing so well in these days. And I feel like in the next five years or so, I think we're going to see more uh, growth when it comes to K-pop music. And, hmm, you know, the nature won't be changed 
at all. And deep down inside, we believe in the fact that you know sexualization is what uh, made us successful in the it's first what place. Drove it, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's what drove it and yeah. the image quality and. Yeah, how about that? You know, basically, basically K-pop music in general is it's pretty conservative by nature. You don't get, mm-hmm. you won't get experimental psychedelic art rock in K-pop. You know, yeah. it's pretty much it's going to stay with the EDM hip hop. Uh, Arturo is largely against streaming services and you know other you know media outlets and you know things like that. But I'm, um, uh. I'm really happy that YouTube and you know yeah. Spotify and other media. I use YouTube are- all the time. I'm a big YouTube guy. Mm, yeah, but you, uh, you are against the Spotify streaming. Yeah, services. yeah. Well, well, f- mainly because I just down. I like to download for free. That's just my thing. Uh, yeah. I, I like to actually have the digital files in my possession. I don't uh, like to depend on the internet in case the internet breaks up and I'm listening to something all of a sudden. I can't. I, see. I can't listen to it anymore because the. The, the 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 internet's not good, you know, or the internet connection is not good. Arturo and I and uh, our good friend Ruben talked yeah. about this intensively uh, a, a week ago, uh, and I'm really happy that Spotify and YouTube, you know, streaming sure. services are allowing indie bands to join the big big leagues. Yeah, I mean, sure. it yeah. takes little to no effort to put out a video and. More than that, it takes no money to actually, you know, produce, you know, that kind of, you know, musical, uh, musical, musical piece. Sure. You know, yeah. Sure. I mean, it's all, yeah, it's all bedroom YouTube, uh, EDM. YouTube, YouTube is the new MTV. Yeah, it really right. is. And and Spotify, to to your point, uh, 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 Sean Kyung, uh, so I'm looking at Spotify now and, you know, I, Arturo knows I use, I rely on Spotify for a lot of my musical streaming. And so let's just say, like, there, there's the band EXO. Which I guess is sort of you know, they're not uh, you know they're not what we think of here in America, but I know that they're popular in Korea. Their song "Love Shot" one hundred and fifty seven million seven hundred and seven thousand six hundred and seventy six listens uh, for a band that most of us in America have not heard of. Now uh, another stat, and then we'll get back to this discussion. So uh, you mentioned uh, "Dynamite" by uh, BTS. That uh, let me let me just click them on. Uh, that is up to eight hundred and seventy-two million eight hundred and forty-eight thousand six hundred and thirty-nine uh, listens. And then even like some of their lesser stuff, like uh, like a song uh, called "Film Out," has like sixty million plus listens. So yeah, the distribution and the the way that these bands are hooking on through Spotify and YouTube is incredible. Yeah, EXO is the second biggest uh, K-pop group after BTS. According oh. to Wikipedia, and I'm reading this right now, um, they have made a lot of money for their enter- their management agency, which is SM Entertainment. Uh, apparently, in back, I think it was 2018, they generated the highest revenue of all SM artists. Uh, they recorded the largest ever quarterly profit for any South Korean entertainment company. At thirteen point four million, that's their management company. So basically, the success of EXO it tells you where we are in the twenty first century. The success of ESO of EXO is measured as how much money they make for their management company. <laughs> not, yeah. not, not 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 so much the quality of their music. 
Wh- which um, is just kind of ironic because this kind of goes back to the hit making machines of the fifties and sixties, yes. right? I mean, yeah, so there's there's yeah, definitely exactly. a parallel there. So and yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. And uh, one last question for you, Cheng uh, Hyung, uh, before we uh, before we end the segment. Uh, who are some of the indie bands and some of the K-pop bands that uh, our listeners may not have heard of that we should check out? Mm, particularly the indie. Indie meaning rock. <laughs> Gate Flowers. Gate Flowers. Gay as in G-A-Y? Gay. Uh, it's, it's oh, like Gate Flowers. Gate Flowers. Oh, Gate. G-A-T-E. Gate Flowers. Not, not, not Gate Flowers. <laughs> not Gate Flowers. Gate Flowers. <laughs> Gate Flowers. Okay. Yeah. okay. Uh, they're... They're they're uh, this rock band. They they took off uh, in 2016 to 2017. I've been listening to them quite a lot, and their honorable mention could be uh, Yebiok, like Reserve mm-hmm. uh, Reserved Army and mm-hmm. things like that. Right. I mean, I right. listened to that song quite. I listened to that song quite a lot when I was in the military because I really wanted to just get out of there and be the reserved uh, personnel. You right. know, like when you when you finish your military service, you're never finished. And yeah, they, yeah. They yeah. Talk about they talk about the life after the military service and how their life's never going to be the same when mm. it comes to the, you know, yeah, military service. I can mention a, a Korean band, but they're they're I guess what we would call post rock. Um, they're a band called Jambinai, and uh, they put out their first album in 2012 called Difference. Um, is 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 a fan. It's a really good record. Basically, they take old traditional uh, Korean folk music, uh, especially like um uh, the kind of stuff you play on a gayagum. It's kind of like a guitar type instrument that's a traditional Korean folk instrument, and they take old traditional Korean folk and they just they just uh, marry it to like heavy metal and post rock, and uh, it's really heavy. And really badass. Their 2016 album, A Hermitage, is the one that I highly recommend. Um, fantastic record. But yeah, if you're into like weirdo um, hybrid shit of like, you know, traditional Korean folk with heavy metal and post rock, you know, think, think like, you know, you know, think of Mogwai. Kind of, they're kind of like in that Mogwai uh, realm. Yeah, uh, yeah, they're 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 really good. Yeah, Jump they definitely I. sound similar. Yeah. To yeah, they're they're interesting, and uh, just for what it's worth, they are on Spotify, and that's for all of you at home. That's spelled J A M as in Mary, B as in boy, I N as in Nancy, A I. Yeah, Jambinai. Anyway, so we went from K-pop to basically, you know. Um, other non-K-pop music. I think we're pretty much done there. Thank you, Chan Hyun, for giving us the the brief rundown and 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 uh, the, the good and the bad, uh, the facts yeah. about K-pop, uh, explaining to us why it's popular and what its appeal, its international appeal, not just in Korea but to East and South Asia as well as now nowadays just the western world in general and uh, yeah, yeah and you've and you've thank definitely you given us a lot to think about so thank you so much man we really appreciate it uh you are now an official uh an officially unofficial curmudgeon All right, so we now go from our excellent discussion of modern K-pop 
into the deep retresses of the vaults of the curmudgeons, namely Christopher O'Connor and Arturo Andrade. This is where we uh, venture uh, back into the past and pick out an album of interest and uh, kind of a public service, but also stuff that actually might be on our radars at any given moment. And so, Arturo, uh, you have entered your fault uh, this week. What have you pulled out? Yeah, this is uh, one of my favorite bands of the noughties. Noughties meaning the 2000s, before the, before the year 2010. Um, this is a Vancouver, uh, Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada band, Canadian band called Black Mountain, and their amazing album from 2008, In the Future. Chan Hyun's a big fan of Black Mountain as well. I think I turned him on to it a few years ago. Um, formed and fronted by singer, songwriter, and guitarist Stephen McBean, who toiled for years in the 1990s through various bands in the Vancouver music scene. They emerged in 2005 with their self-titled debut that immediately garnered critical praise for their marriage of Black Sabbath-esque heavy 70s rock and raw, droning, velvet underground-inspired art rock with shades of psychedelia and progressive rock. Such was the buzz surrounding them that it got them a lucrative lucrative gig opening for Coldplay, of all bands, for three weeks during uh, Coldplay's Twisted Logic Tour of 2005. (laughs) However, it was um, Black Mountain's follow-up in 2008 that, in my opinion, truly cemented their status as one of the best North American bands on the planet, a distinction they held up until only a few years ago. While expanding on and bringing out the prog rock strains in their music would usually elicit nothing but derision (laughs) by you from yours truly and you uh, in McBean and company's hands. It comes off like a much more guitar heavy, much more disciplined, much less indulgent Pink Floyd with a much bigger set of balls. Uh, imagine 1971 to 75 era Floyd corralled and smothered by Soundgarden and sprinkled with a little Melvin's weirdness. Uh, this kind of music can easily fall into 1970s rock pastiche, but it avoids that due to exquisitely tight songwriting, soaring melodies, uh, an angry grunge edge. After all, Stephen McBean did come up in the 90s after, you know, and an immaculately crafted sense of build-up, space, tension release dynamics that permeates every track. Um, Lyrically and vocally, when McBean isn't espousing a dystopian future where oligarchs rule the world with a totalitarian grip and launch countries into endless wars, especially appropriate during the time when this album came out because it was... The raging, the raging wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, Amber Weber, who was was at this time a member of the band, her haunting Hope Sandoval on creepy drugs vocals, power songs such as the super tense Queens will play, with her exhortations of blood crawling over and permeating all of existence. Yeah, they were that kind of band. Yes, they were. Yes, they were. <laughs> Uh, McBean has always been a busy man with his side projects, such as the goth folk excursion of Grim Tower and the Black Mountain Light venture of Pink Mountaintops. 
but he came back to Black Mountain with 2010's Wilderness Heart, which saw the band streamline their sound a bit and delve more into something akin to a more concise, catchy, appealing take on doom metal. A long hiatus followed, with the band emerging with their fourth album, aptly titled Four, in Roman numerals, in 2016. This album is a latter-day, under-recognized rock classic that takes In the Future's expansive, spacey prog rock and ratchets it up with sprawling psychedelia, beautiful molten lava guitar, and subtle electronic dance beats. McBean would soon fire the whole band, hire new members, maintain the Black Mountain name, and release Destroyer in 2019 to mild critical response and much more tepid fan response due to the album's conventional, cliche, old-school metal sound that isn't too far removed from Iron Maiden. Yeah, it fucking sucked. (laughs) (laughs) Nevertheless, Black Mountain have established a lot of credit with serious rock and uh, serious rock fans and the and they have the leeway to put out a dud every now and then due to the brilliant run of their first four albums especially the unearthly masterpiece that is in the future okay so this is uh this is a weird one and uh you know there was a, a period you know like seems like lately i this is the second time in the last uh, handful of episodes i've pulled from this well there was a period of about 99 and 2000 where there were these uh, indie record owning uh, geeks and these sort of these digging in the crates types and uh, uh, collegiate uh, students that were uh, looking at old uh, tapes and were just like searching for stuff out there. And they managed to pull quite a few acts that were in and artists and you know, even like music teachers that were doing really cool and interesting stuff in the seventies that never saw the light of day. Now, all of a sudden they get their, uh, uh, opportunity to shine, uh, through music stores like other music in New York, which, you know, Arturo and I both frequented RIP or Amoeba, uh, which I believe is still around. But yes. Probably, Amoeba's still there. Yeah. yeah. Probably holding on by a thread, but uh, you know, record stores like that. And so this is one of those acts. So we're talking about the JPT scare band. And okay. So the story here is the JPT scare band is these three dudes. Uh, they're buddies from Kansas city. There's drummer, Jeff Luttrell. There's bassist, Paul Grigsby. And then there's singer, guitarist, songwriter, Terry Swope. Hey, JPT, get it? Uh, <laughs> which is interesting because this is really Terry Swope's band. I mean, this guy is, uh, he's the star of this group. So anyway, so they're a local trio that's kicking around in the early 70s. And they are clearly influenced by the psychedelic blues of the late 60s and early 70s. And also of the sort of the, uh, the, the, guitar composition guys so you know think hendrix and clapton and jeff beck and uh i you know frank zappa and these guys that were you know the basically the lead singer the shredder guys the sort of the psychedelic blues guys and they would do these shows and they did a lot of uh acetate creations and real to real stuff in their basements and they played around kansas city and, uh, you know, sort of the suburbs uh, in and around Kansas City for years. They never went anywhere. Uh, they were never discovered, really never left it. And they never stopped jamming. And so now these two guys 
who I guess I've seen an article that refers to them as uh, rock anthropologists, which I find is funny because basically that just means they're nerds. Uh, they were nerds with a re- they were nerds with a record company, and they came across uh, these old uh, records. There were these two vinyl uh, performances that these guys put together from uh, the seventies, and they have the like, these wonderfully wise ass druggy names. Uh, one was called Acid Acetate Excursion, and <laughs> yeah, and the other was called Rape of the Titan Sirens. Uh, Rape. Rape of the Titan oh, Sirens, and uh, and and so they. This is uh, I think it's eight songs total on two vinyls, and these guys are like, oh my goodness, we need to put this out. And so what they did is they rolled up these two uh, little vinyl records into one CD that was called Sleeping Sickness after uh, the, what ends up being the lead uh, track uh, on this record, and. Let me let me tell you, uh, you know, we discovered this uh, Arturo and I back in uh, 2000 and another music, you know, other music, whoever like was their main curator or wrote their little reviews uh, was wonderful because they were really good at describing stuff and stuff I would have never bought in a million years. I bought just based on those bios. And so we (laughs) we get this and uh, I'm telling you, this may be one of the greatest recordings ever released for people who like to smoke hydroponic weed, sit back in an armchair and listen to a guy solo his balls off for 10 minutes at a time. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's tremendous. Uh, the maestro here is that guy, Terry Swope. Uh, again, he wrote all the songs. He's the singer. He's the guitarist, uh, clearly influenced. And so the exercise is basically it's his rhythm section going and then him just just going to town uh, for, you know, anywhere between eight and 13 minutes. And, cool. you know, there's, there's some really uh, fun uh, song titles uh, on this that are, you know, totally indicative of, of these guys that are just bashing the fuck out in a basement in uh, 1973. I mean, there's sleeping sickness. There's the slow sick shuffle. There's King rat, which is my favorite song on this thing. It's 13 minutes, but it has, it is loud as fuck. It is just this really just grouchy, crunchy, gnarly, bash out, uh, uh, just pure like rock bliss riff with this like wacky soloing running alongside of it. And like, and just, it's incredibly psychedelic and it just bashes out and it goes on for 13 minutes. Uh, and so, uh, needless to say, when they released, uh, the sleeping sickness CD, uh, Rape of the Titan Sirens was uh, uh, conspicuously absent uh, or, you know, obviously conspicuously absent. Uh, so, like I said, this album, again, it's just it's like 70 minutes of nonstop bash out and just just jamming. I mean, just like prodigious, just like three piece uh, jamming with Terry Swope in your face. I mean, this is a guy that. If he had gotten lucky enough to have the right guy in the audience at the right time, probably would have been out there as a radio god. Uh, or at least he should have been. He was that good uh, of, a, of an axe wielder. So, uh, and then, so the story, the rest of the story here is kind of amusing. So these guys get their discovery and they're out there and oh, it's like, oh boy, now we have a chance to cash in. And so they try to convince these two guys from Monster Records that found them. To, hey, put out our new stuff or put out our other stuff. 
And those guys were like, well, well, this shit kind of sucks. And so they backed off. And so uh, JP&T said, you know what? Screw those guys. We're going to put out our own shit. Uh, and so one, they uh, they formed a label with the wonderful name Kong Bomar. Uh, <laughs> I don't understand it. it. Why not Kung Fu? It's Kung, it's Kung Bomar, or at least they could have done Kung Fu Mar uh, or Fubar. How about Kung Fu Bar? Uh, that would have been better. Uh, so that's their imprint. And in 2002, they released an album called Past is Prologue, uh, which has three or four new songs. And then they go back to the old acetates for the rest of it. And so it's kind of like, it's interesting. So they, they slap on Sleeping Sickness. Uh, they slap on a couple of the other old songs. But, you know, the first three tracks, they're very Sabbathy. They're very, like, they're very droney and very heavy. Uh, right. on that and uh, lo and behold a truncated version of rape of the titan sirens comes on they're just called titan sirens but it's basically a four and a half minute carve out uh, uh from that <laughs> and so uh they did get their moment and that album sort of became an underground hit for you know for the the uh, prog metal uh fans out there and so it's kind of it's grown in stature over the years. Um, there's a cult behind that record. It's weird. It's more of a, a, cult, a cult behind past his prologue than there is sleeping sickness, but sleeping sickness is the fascinating one because it's like, uh, from their basement to our ears. I think this is the first time in our vault segment that we've produced two bands that really should go on tour together. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> because, yeah. I mean, because, because, because their music, they, they, they aren't, they aren't that far removed from each other. Yeah. Let, yeah. Let's just put, yeah. Let's just put it this way. And, and some other planet out there, these, the equivalent of old faithful in yeah. uh, Yellowstone, uh, these yeah. guys definitely spring from the same geyser. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. like, like once, once touring gets underway, I think Black Mountain should reconvene and ask JPT Scareband to come on the road and open for them. Yeah, yeah. Our, our, our mascot is Terry Swope. Come out here, Terry. Wow, 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 wow. Okay. So <laughs> on that note, I believe we yes. are, are now exiting the vault. Uh, yeah. This has been a fantastic uh, episode of the Chromogen Rock Report. I really feel like we've done a public service here. Yeah, and so, we we're educating people about K-pop. And so, Chiang uh, Hyung Park, uh, thank you very much. Uh, we thank you for having me. We really needed to ask a Korean dude, and you came through in the clutch. So we much appreciate that. Uh, and so uh, we have come here to the end, and we thank everybody for listening. If you have any fan mail or any thoughts, uh, hit us up at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com. We are on Twitter at uh, at curmudgeonpod. Uh, we're planning to get more aggressive, and so we're going to be, to be doing some clever things with uh, mini episodes and promotions and chunking some things up. Uh, you know, those uh, longtime listeners will remember a, a, a Kate Bush rant that uh, Arturo went on, so we want to feature that. And so, uh, I, I think Mike Depp left rock rant report. is pretty damn good on rocking. Yeah, yeah, you know, uh, Arturo That's knows how to rant. Me, you know, I'm, I'm pretty good at like we know uh, more sort of. Uh, like uh, support us with donations sort of, uh, at patreon.com he's, he's the funny one me I'm, I'm, I'm find the show once and more on our medium site join us next time as rock nerds smack you with knowledge stay rude stay crude stay sophisticated thank you for listening